thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Back Chat, exploring the five pillars of health, thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Bianca Dobson. Welcome to Back Chat. My name is Paul Bergamo, and it's great to be in our next podcast. Back Chat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in neurology. Today, we're going to explore the health pillar of being your best with your neurology. To help me today, as always, it's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Bianca Dobson. G'day, Bianca. How are you going? Hi, Paul. Good. How are you? I'm excited to be here tonight. It's excellent, isn't it? And look, we've got a really interesting topic yeah. regards uh, you know, like a new technology with non-invasive brain stimulation. And it's association with chronic pain and headaches we're going to talk about shortly. Have you come across this sort of approach or technique at all? I'd love to say I'm well-versed in this, but no, I, not a lot at all, Paul. I, uh, I can't wait to hear and learn tonight. Um, I mean, we come across so many different types of patients in our primary practice, but this will be a whole new chapter for me. Fantastic. Yeah, look, and it's going to be really interesting to see and hear what uh, our expert has to say about this particular topic. So we... I'm very fortunate tonight to have Associate Pref- Professor Siobhan Chabron be with us tonight. She's a Senior Research Scientist at the Neuroscience Research Australia. She's, she has an undergraduate degree in physiotherapy and a PhD in neuroscience. She leads a research team that investigates the role of brain plasticity in chronic pain and designs and tests new brain-based therapies for the treatment of pain. Hey, Siobhan, how are you going? Hi, Paul. I'm going good, thanks. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Siobhan, I'm going to jump in here. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm really good. I'm going to ask the the obvious question. What is non-invasive brain stimulation? Yeah, it's an obvious question, but it's a good question. <laughs> um, one that involves the application of a, a magnetic current over the scalp and if you remember vaguely high school physics you know that uh, magnetic currents tend to set up and turn electrical currents that are not impeded by the the scalp so in turn that electric current causes the neurons underneath where the brain stimulator is positioned to fire the second type uh, involves the application of really weak direct electrical currents they're tiny they're in the order of about one to two milliamps to the brain, this time via surface electrodes placed on the scalp. So a little bit like TENS, probably lots of you are familiar with TENS, but, but yeah. kind of your brain in a, in a strange way. Interesting. So, I mean, Siobhan, with, with regards to this sort of stuff, ECT and electroconvulsive type therapy is something that, that we recall years back in for, for treatment with major depressive disorder. How does that fit in with these sort of non-invasive approaches? Absolutely. So, so electroconvulsive shock therapy is is really the origin of these techniques. So that's been around for a good hundred years, and in conditions like depression, it's it's reasonably effective, but it carries with it a whole ton of really quite nasty side effects. And um, it involves the application of a very high voltage current to the brain, which in turn also causes a lot of muscle contraction. And um, so it's typically delivered in conjunction with muscle relax- relaxants, for example. 
So although the premise is somewhat similar here, we use much uh, tinier, tinier currents. So we're not producing any kind of, of active muscle contraction. It's a much safer technique. It's much more tolerable. Um, and it's, it's already being used in the clinic for things like depression. Not so much for chronic pain yet, but certainly for depression. And Siobhan, with this, I mean, with the with the two different approaches here, with the magnetic approach and the direct current, uh, when do you use what? And, you know, what duration are you often sort of doing your um, treatment periods with patients for? Good question. So, so the jury's out a little bit on which technique is better than the other. There's, there's pros and cons to each. Um, the transcranial magnetic stimulation is a, a bigger heftier unit, uh, whereas the transcranial direct current stimulation is nice and small, it's portable. So from a clinical applicability point of view, it has a a nicer utility at this point. Um, In terms of which is more efficacious in the clinic, the the evidence for head-to-head comparison of the two techniques doesn't exist yet. Um, yeah, and the safety profiles are, are reasonably similar across the two different uh, modalities. It's really interesting, Bianca, to hear these sort of brain-based approaches, isn't it? Yeah. You know, we're often we're often looking at treatment sort of downstream from a peripheral sort of perspective, but this this is really going to the source, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think with that, Siobhan, when we traditionally think of an invasive procedure you know, something that in- requires an incision or an insertion in the body that can have safety issues. Is non-invasive brain stimulation safe? It is. So that the studies that have been done uh, suggest that it is very safe. Um, transcranial direct current stimulation, the, the main side effect of that is tingling under the electrodes. It's a little bit debatable about whether or not that's a, that's a side effect. Similar to, of course, if, if you used a TENS machine because we're putting a little bit of current over the scalp, it causes a little bit of tingling. Um, there have been some reports of transient uh, headaches, nausea um, with this technique, but actually when they compare it against studies of placebo, they find exactly the same frequency of these side effects probably because in our research studies we're required to inform people beforehand and of course if you say to someone I'm going to stick something really new and strange on your brain you might get a headache you might feel a bit nauseous it, 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 the, 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 the anxiety around the new technique will often produce those kinds of symptoms um, the magnetic stimulation has a few other um, safety requirements with it so things like um, it's very important that we exclude people who have epilepsy or a history of epilepsy or who are taking um, medications which which increase the excitability of the cortex. Um, but in otherwise healthy individuals with chronic pain conditions, uh, there's never been any, any um, inductions of a seizure. So that's what we're concerned about with people who have epilepsy, that we, we overexcite an already excitable cortex. So I was just going to ask about that because I would have thought, yeah, with electrical conductive type um, pathology like epilepsy, I wonder whether it would be a complete contraindication or is it still considered a relative contraindication? How do you... If, if... Uh, it's, it's a complete contraindication. There are some studies being run in very carefully controlled environments 
looking at the kind of reverse, can we reduce excitability with these techniques in epilepsy? But for everybody outside of that, you know, if, if you're not designing something that specifically targets epilepsy, um, it's a contraindication. And, and at this point, it's, it's certainly a contraindication in any kind of clinical uh, scenario. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, look, with your expertise in neurosciences and the brain, if you look at, say, chronic headache, what's what do you see? What's your view with regards to the role of the brain in, say, chronic headaches, for instance? It, interesting, because I think it's still really evolving. Um, across the field in general, the, the sort of prevailing view is that when pain becomes chronic, um, we have some sort of maladaptive plasticity, which means that for, for whatever reason, the brain continues to report a feeling of pain or to, or to alert the person to a feeling of pain, even though there's nothing particularly going on in the periphery, which is a bit different, of course, when pain is, is acute. You know, when you, when you sprain your ankle, of course, pain is very important. It, it, it sends very important messages about uh, safety and preserving the part that's been injured. But when pain becomes chronic, that kind of protection function gets lost. So in headache, and actually in migraine in particular, um, we think about this idea of plasticity being maladaptive. And plasticity, of course, most of us see as the idea that the brain can change. But one of the things we forget is that a brain that is constantly changing also needs to be controlled and stabilized. You can't have all of your synapses constantly changing and, and perhaps increasing or decreasing their, their synaptic strength. Um, and so one of the, the really new hypotheses in this area is that it might actually be the stabilizing kind of plasticity that, that gets a bit disrupted in migraine. And so what it allows is this, this sort of uh, increasing excitability of the brain that goes up and up and up and up, triggers a migraine attack, and then uh, comes down the other side and then starts to come back up again, up, 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 triggers another migraine attack and comes down a bit because that, that ceiling is not being, uh, the ceiling for excitability is not being, um, the brakes aren't coming on when they should, I guess is the right way to, to think about it. So, Siobhan, what's the evidence for the use of non-invasive brain stimulation in headache? Still emerging, so so non-invasive brain stimulation is a field that's still very much in its infancy. Um, there's more and more trials coming through, both with the magnetic stimulation and the transcranial direct current stimulation. The evidence is a bit mixed. Some of those trials show uh, good effects on clinical outcomes. Some of them don't. And one of the things that I think we're missing at the moment is um, – Patient populations that are very homogenous, um, people that are homogenous, people with you know psychosocial features that are homogenous, that might allow us to see in who this might work and for who it doesn't. Because undoubtedly, like everything we do in the clinic, it, it, it won't be a, a, an appropriate treatment for everybody. It's uh, really fascinating, Bianca, because we look at, say, migraines that um – Siobhan touched on, you know, there's different sort of theories of inflammatory pathways and um, using perhaps anti-inflammatory type pr approaches to try and yeah. to constrict uh, migraine type headaches. But but now I suppose here's another hypothesis coming from um, an, a, a hyper. I suppose Siobhan like a hyper excitability type presentation. Is that how you sort of perceive it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I and I guess one of the other things to say here is that the the idea of maladaptive cortical plasticity or hyperexcitability of the cortex doesn't necessarily negate that there's there's stuff going on in other, you know, inflammatory or, or peripheral mm-hmm. pathways. And one of the ways that this technique might be quite useful is, in, is as an adjunct to things that clinicians already do that, that seem to have efficacy for particular patients. And it allows you to kind of target from the top down and from the bottom up. And, and that's really interesting. So I, I don't think it's it's probably ever, it's not going to be a cure-all, you know, where you just mm-hmm. stick something on the head alone um, and, and, it, your pain is gone, but in conjunction with the other things we do that target some of the, the peripheral pathways or indeed target the brain but from the periphery because the, the way we get to plasticity in the brain, of course, is from it's from the periphery, um, it's, it's potentially interesting. And I suppose these approaches, these techniques become, I suppose, like go from maladaptive to more neuroplastic positive type change if, if their approach is successful in in say sedating the brain if it's coming if we're talking about migraine headaches is that the sort of overcome uh, the overview of it yeah so that's kind of the 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 theory i guess is that if you can um uh turn your maladaptive plasticity into something that is is more adaptive or in the case of a brain that's hyper excitability hyper excitable dampen that excitability that you might have good flow on effects that we're working with fantastic so if we go and compare say the evidence for the use of non-invasive brain stimulation say for chronic pain we've touched on headaches and you've sort of described it's emerging it's sort of developing what's the what's the evidence talk in regards chronic pain similar because the field is still quite young um Chronic pain, it depends a little bit across which conditions you look. So, for example, there's there's fairly good evidence in fibromyalgia that these techniques produce uh, clinical effects that are roughly equivalent to those of FDA-approved pharmaceuticals for fibromyalgia. Wow. In other conditions like low back pain, it's it's very mixed. The, the jury is still uh, quite out. Um, and same for things like knee osteoarthritis. And, of course, one of the issues you've got there is, is that although they're all called chronic pain, the mechanisms of fibromyalgia are, of course, are of course quite different to those of back pain, to knee osteoarthritis and to headache and migraine. So still more, more work to be done. It's certainly an, an evolving field. Um but perhaps it has some potential in, in the future. And Siobhan, say, and sorry, sorry, uh, Bianca, just for a second. It, 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 so when you say, for instance, with low back pain, is, is the positioning of, say, electrodes specific to anatomical parts, say, on the, on the primary sensory or motor cortex associated with the location of the back? Is that your starting point or is it not? Wh- wh- how do you determine where you place your electrodes? Yeah, interesting question. So, so there's a lot of theoretical targets here. The, the motor cortex is one. The sensory cortex, of course, is an obvious one. And the other one that's been quite widely studied is the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which has links into you know emotional and cognitive uh, affective components of pain. Almost, uh, almost ac- uh, across the board in these studies, the most effective placement appears to be over the primary motor cortex, which in some ways seems a little bit counterintuitive, right? You mm. think pain, you might think DLPFC, you might think the sensory cortex. Mm. 
But the even with invasive brain stimulation, the most uh, effective target site has always been the primary motor cortex. It's thought that that's because um, M1 links down, has very strong links down to the thalamus. Um, it also has widely distributed links with other brain networks. And probably what's happening is that we're not getting just a local primary motor cortex effect. We're getting M1 as the conduit for um, changes occurring across a, a network of brain regions that are involved in the experience of pain. Yeah, very interesting. So, question, research heading, is there a way to translate that research into clinical practice for practitioners yet? No, it, it's certainly coming. So there's a lot of work being done around things like um, transcranial direct current stimulation units that can be uh, used at home, for example. So a little bit like a TENS unit, you could p prescribe one and send it home with the patient. Um, it's it's not yet approved for clinical use in pain, although there's, there's um, obviously with the advent and, or the, the, the design of at-home units, that's, that's something that the field is thinking about. Um, it is, as I mentioned already, approved for depression. Um, the other thing that's interesting about it, I guess, in a clinical context is changing the perception that chronic pain is, is related to a structural peripheral problem. Um, and that's been a widely held view for a very long time that is not easy to change. Um, it's the, the view of, of, the, of the field and research that chronic pain is, is, a, is probably cortical, something to do with maladaptive plasticity. And we know that in 90% you know, of people who present with chronic low back pain, we can't find anything wrong in the tissues. <clears throat> and the same is true for conditions like osteoarthritis where although we can clearly see something in the tissues with cartilage degeneration, it correlates very poorly with pain. So you can have a knee that looks really terrible but very little pain. You can have a knee that looks great but have a lot of pain. And those things really point to chronic pain being a, a centrally mediated uh, phenomenon. Yeah. Paul, I think you would have seen x-rays of patients of yours that you put the films up and you think, oh, my goodness, but then they're relatively pain-free and functional. That's right. And then the opposite as well, you know, there's hardly anything to observe or measure and this person's in chronic pain. Yeah, yeah. it's it's completely exactly what I was thinking when uh, Siobhan was running through that, <laughs> the same correlation where it's not one-to-one -one what, what seems um, from a morphological perspective versus what's actually uh, being presented. So it's there's a, certainly a mismatch between that. I was thinking too, Siobhan, I don't know whether you're, you're – there's some theories too about scoliosis as a, as a – as a structural uh, phenomena and, and and theories about the vestibular system perhaps being associated with aberrance associated with that and then a scoliosis following on from a, from a vestibular type problem. There's some interesting sort of uh, early research um, that's coming through with that, which sort of lends to itself from a central mechanism perhaps causing something further downstream. So I, I suppose it's all under the same sort of pool in, in regards uh, similar to what you're saying as well. I, I think... What's going to be fascinating if we take a crystal ball, Siobhan, and say if you know as this work develops and um, and and uh, develops more evidence, more efficacy, how will the rollout occur? How's it going to be that for the gatekeepers in this case could be practitioners, chiropractors, physiotherapists? Um, there's certainly going to need to be some potential training associated with this sort of work. 
How can you how can you foresee down the track how this could be the research can be taken into clinical practice, especially given if there's little little units that are going to be potentially used for home units for patients? How will the practitioners get involved eventually down the track? Do you think? Yeah. So so if. If it's shown to be efficacious, then, of course, the first place to start is really with the clinicians. Um, but yeah. it's not a great idea to start selling these over the yeah, counter before sure. we have anybody that's, that's trained in their use. So it would require some, some training of clinicians. I mean, that could be easily done through through short training courses. Um, the units themselves are not expensive. They're, they're not difficult. And um, so, for example, physiotherapists who already apply electrical currents, they have that as part of their undergraduate degree already, um, and there's probably other professions that, that have the same. So it's really just tweaking that knowledge a bit, making sure that the application is safe and effective, um, and then being able to do that in your clinic, it, particularly in combination with your other treatments, whatever that might be, um, and, and sending your patient home then with with their their home device perhaps but also with their um other treatments again whatever that might be exercise or stretching or or whatever it is that that becomes part of their rehabilitation plan and if i if i go one step further when do you think when do you perceive this could be sort of being rolled out the next is it possible next five years ten years or when do you think potentially yeah so yeah at the moment the hold-up is really with the evidence um, so because these techniques are very, very simple, I mean, a transcranial direct current stimulation unit, you can make one at home, you know, from a 9-volt battery and, and a few cords. And indeed, because the, the technology has been very difficult to regulate because of its simplicity, you don't have to go far on YouTube to find people who are making these devices out of desperation and giving them a go. Um, so the, the problem, the, the hold-up is, is not so much the 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 device itself, which is easy enough to manufacture and, and already is, is could easily be widely available, it's that we don't yet have the evidence to prove that it's effective and we don't know under, under what circumstances, so for which patients, um, at what time, uh, in their, in their, you know, does it need to be given quite early in the journey to, into chronic pain or is it fine if you're a couple of years down the track um, we don't know precisely how long it should be given for over how many sessions so there's all these kind of little logistical questions that still need to be answered before um, it would be appropriate for if sort of FDA or in Australia TGA um, approval for use in the clinic so a bit more work for your research team yeah yes yeah <laughs> so we and others need to get need to keep keep moving along <laughs> <laughs> very good very good now we're very excited that you're going to be speaking at a neurologic education event uh in march next year can you just give uh, our listeners on back chat uh, just a little bit of forerun of what you'll be talking about uh in the topic of uh, non-invasive brain stimulation yep so so largely i think i'll be expanding really on what we've talked about today uh just talking about it in a lot more detail covering the literature in a bit in a bit more detail so it's clear in relation to migraine and headache what we're thinking mechanistically in terms of the brain and then how these techniques might be useful uh for targeting those changes and, and where they might be in clinical practice in the future fantastic excellent we're looking, really looking forward to that now Siobhan, we come to a section on, on the podcast where we actually just tap into the expert that we're interviewing about something that inspires them, that sort of led them to get to where they've got to. Would you mind sharing with our listeners 
how you've gone from where you've where you've started to where you are now and what's been inspiring for you? So my journey into science is a little bit weird, I guess, <laughs> because I, I, I trained um, as a classical dancer as a, as, a, as, a, as a child and then into my teens. And when I finished high school, um, I had scholarships to study at, at various places, West Australian Academy of Performing Arts and schools of Victoria. Um, but I also, alongside that, always had this really strong interest in pathophysiology and in physiology in general. Um, and I, I wanted to be able to combine the two. So I ended up studying a physiotherapy degree because I thought, you know, that gives me my physiology and my pathoanatomical um, passion. But it also gives me the dancing, right, because because physios work a lot with dancers. But it only took me a couple of years in before my path diverged quite a lot and I, I sort of I lost the idea of the, the dance physio and realized that I was really passionate about research and problem solving and finding answers to to questions and um, so I moved from there and into a into a PhD but it's not something I'd, I'd ever predicted I had had no intentions of, of becoming a scientist. <laughs> so what, how many years of uh, physiotherapy did you do before you moved into research? Uh, four so I, I completed my physio degree yep. yeah and then Oh, as a clinician, you mean? Yeah. I went straight. Yeah, I went straight from one to the other. So I, I worked as a, worked clinically on my weekends during my PhD, but I didn't have a period of of years working clinically in between. I sort of by the end of my physio degree, I was quite certain that that I really liked research, and so I moved straight in, which is also not that common. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, we I mean we interviewed um, Bianca, didn't we? Dean Watson. Who you'd probably know, yes, and um, uh, Siobhan, and you know, he he he, he got into his PhD in, in his late fifties, I think it was. Uh, that's right, yeah. Right, after that's doing right, thirty yeah. odd years of physiotherapy, so there's the absolute antithesis of uh, uh-huh. of entry point into research, but both uh, very successful. So fantastic, yeah. Siobhan. Do you have perhaps three take home messages for our back chat listeners today? Yeah, so I think I think the first one is I, I would encourage people to think about chronic pain, regardless of the underlying cause, um, as something that it always has a, a cortical component. So it's not always just structural, um, structural anatomical pathology. Um, I think that's a really important shift in thinking as we move forward into the future, and, and for thinking about how we might treat these people. Um, so it's, it's clear, I guess, the second take-home message then is that we, we need to target more than just the periphery. Um, we need to combine our peripheral treatments with things that target the central nervous system probably to be effective. And I guess the third thing is that non-invasive brain stimulation is an exciting, promising area of research. It's not quite ready for translation into the clinic yet, but it's something to keep an eye on into the future. Excellent. A nice, really nice little summation there. So to finish up here, Siobhan, so you lead a program of research that spans the pipeline from basic science to clinical trials and clinical translation. Your team is always looking for passionate and talented individuals to contribute to research in the field of chronic pain. How, If someone's interested in this podcast, how can they get in touch with you? Um, email is best. Um, if uh, Just a simple Google of my name. I'm, I'm the only one of me, <laughs> right. fortunately, with my, my slightly strange name. Um, shoot me an email and, and we can go from there. I mean, we have lots of things going on, but we're also really interested in engaging with clinicians and, and patients around 
you know, what they see in their everyday clinic, what, what, what ideas they have, what they're thinking about, um, and really happy to answer questions in, in more detail. Fantastic. And uh, as mentioned earlier, Carl and I have you coming to speak at the Neurologic Education event, which details can be picked up from www.neurologiceducation.com.au. Hey, Bianca, what do you think? Oh, brilliant. I love the concept that we know that the brain controls everything, and as chiropractors, that's our premise, but to hear that there's always a cortical component on all chronic pain, it just reinforces we need to look further than just the pain location. Yes, yes. We've got a, look, a broader picture, don't we, really, regards it all. And yeah. I think um, some of the exciting research that Siobhan's doing is opening that door up and, and opening those conversations up further. And, yes. You know, it's going to be uh, really interesting to see her research develop further and, and see the impacts it has, especially with sufferers of chronic pain that we all have challenges with every you know, and, and a lot of different practitioners do from psychologists to to uh gyros physios etc so i think if we have something else that can be offered it'd be really great hope for those who are sufferers siobhan thank you so much for joining us tonight thank you very much for having me it was really nice to be here excellent thank you thank you for listening to backchat to stay abreast with updates with backchat please go to our facebook page www.facebook.com forward slash backchat podcast all relevant website links of today's show will be on our Backchat Podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We'll leave you one thought. Be the best at what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat Podcast. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.